Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Living the Truth, with a message titled, Widows Who Change the World. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading 1 Timothy 5, 9 to 16. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children and shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So I don't know what you think about the title of my sermon, whether it's too strong or a bit over the top or not properly expressing the intent of the text. I mean, maybe it is too strong, but hear me out. Think of how often God chooses unlikely people in unlikely places to further the gospel and to make a great change in others' lives. In the second century in Egypt, older women in the church often were involved in collecting unwanted babies and nurturing and raising them. By the third century, inspired by Paul's words from 1 Timothy, widows had formed an official order in the church. They gave themselves to prayer, assisted women in baptism, cared for abandoned orphans that no one else in their culture would touch, nursed the sick who were often left alone, visited people in prison, evangelized pagan women, provided hospitality to strangers and traveling Christian missionaries, and perhaps most important of all, they taught younger women the life of godliness and so modeled in their ministry an ideal for Christian womanhood. They were a powerful army of deacons who paved the way for the effective proclamation of the gospel. One pagan philosopher in the fourth century was heard to exclaim, great heavens, what remarkable women are to be found among the Christians. Indeed, Christian women had become known for remarkable sacrifice and their witness played no small part in the rapid advancement of the gospel in the early church. They provided a role model different from anything found in pagan culture. Indeed, I can't help but wonder how our culture can be impacted by presenting an ideal of Christian womanhood that looks different from the pornographic ideal or the feminist ideal or the living in self-indulgence ideal that's sometimes portrayed as the ideal for womanhood. I think that Paul's words in this section inspired the very kind of orders of widows that were to appear later, women who changed the world. So what was it that Paul wrote that inspired that kind of action? We know that the early church took a great interest in widows. And from the formation of the church in Jerusalem, we hear the church was involved in the daily feeding of widows. But here in 1 Timothy, Paul seems to be speaking of something much more important than daily feeding. For here, widows are deeply involved in ministry. And here in verse 9, he's speaking about a list of widows. In fact, look at verses 11 to 12. 
refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So at first glance, we might not understand. Why would a widow marrying have anything to do with drawing her away from Christ and abandoning her former faith? In fact, if you look at verse 14, Paul encourages younger women to marry. So what accounts for verses 11 and 12? Well, I think the answer has everything to do with the last word in verse 12, the word faith. I surveyed 10 translations that I found only two, the ESV and the King James Version that translated this word as faith. The rest all translated it as a pledge. Now in the Greek, the word is pistis, which means faith, and yet one of the best Greek dictionaries available believes that the word faith here is used in a specialized sense and should be translated as a pledge. In other words, the widows who were marrying were not abandoning their faith, but they were abandoning their former pledge. So what does that mean? Well, it seems possible that the widows mentioned in 1 Timothy had made a pledge or a formal promise made to God and known to the church that they would not marry again for the sake of a specialized ministry that they could only fulfill if they were unencumbered by the demands of marriage and children. So what was the ministry? Well, we know what it was in the third century, but what was it at the time of Paul? What was this thing? Well, we can't say for certain, but we have a hint of it from Paul's letter to Titus, where he seems to designate a job description for older Christian women. Titus 2, 3 to 5 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. It would seem that some of the godly widows in Ephesus had made a vow not to marry in order to give greater time for teaching younger women, which must have included also some of the other deeds of mercy which came about in the third century that became an order, an order that changed people's perception of what life was for. See, these women modeled servanthood and sacrifice and self-giving love. Those are the very virtues of Christ being played out in practical ways. They became extraordinary women, examples to their sisters in Christ. Their example was exactly the opposite of what pagan women prized in their day which highlighted ease and sensuality and luxury, self-indulgence. And it had an impact. People had never thought of this as an ideal in living. And in time, these women became admired by others and became examples of what Christianity was all about. Now, you might expect that Paul would be delighted if any widow took a pledge never to marry. I think it's likely that Paul was a widower who was himself committed never to marry for the sake of the gospel. But Paul has a concern. He doesn't want every widow to take this vow, this pledge. He wants the pledge that some widows were taking to be restricted. And so what he offers us in these verses, as we've read them, is the calling of a widow who has made a pledge. Indeed, says Paul, before they make a pledge, they should meet three criteria. So here's the first. She must be an older woman. In fact, she must be at least 60 years of age. So in that day, 60 would have been considered old. And from what we know of, you know, Roman and Greek culture, 
60 would also have been a time when most thought that sexual desire was either gone or beginning to wane. You know, it was considered the age of retirement, but it was also considered the age of contemplation. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age when a life lived well would now begin to show in things like character and reputation. Paul says she must be an older woman. The second restriction is that she must have been sexually faithful to her husband. You know, it's very easy to read the latter part of verse 9 as referring to a woman who's, you know, only been married once. That is, she is the wife of one husband. In other words, if she remarried and then became a widow again, she's off the list. But look back at 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. You know, some of you might remember that when I spoke on that matter, I said it doesn't cancel out an elder who has been a widower and then remarried. Rather, in chapter 3, Paul would have an elder to be a one-woman man. That's to say, you know, in his heart and in his commitment and in his desire, his eyes don't wander. He's known as a one-woman man. Now, that's exactly what now Paul says about the widow. She's to be a one-man woman. She is known to have been sexually faithful, never having violated her commitment to one man, to her husband. And then the third restriction she must be renowned for good works. See, I want you to think about that first line in verse 10 as the headline. Everything else follows. So in a sense, verse 10 is the Christian ideal of womanhood. And the idea behind this verse is that outwardly, when people look at this woman, she appears to be a woman of great deeds. And in that ideal, Paul mentions five attributes of a widow who has a spotless reputation. First, she has brought up children. Now, Paul's not depreciating the woman who in her marriage can't bear children. Rather, he's pointing to the norm. Besides, given the work of these women with orphans, that might not have been a problem. You know, second, the issue of hospitality probably deals with her taking in traveling Christian preachers and missionaries and church messengers. Third, she is to have washed the feet of the saints, and that points to her life of serving the body of believers. And fourth, Caring for the afflicted, no doubt, led to a life of caring for orphans and the sick and those in prison and so forth. And then finally, every good work is a way of saying all the stuff like that. She is noted as a woman of godliness. For many, the most misunderstood truths of the Bible revolve around the reality of heaven and hell. Misshapen by popular culture and misinformation, many Christians fail to have a true understanding of eternity. In response, Dr. John Newfeld and Back to the Bible Canada present a new book, Heaven and Hell. As we believe the truth about eternity is so critical, for the month of November only, this important book is now available for free as our gift. Bruce Ware, professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote about the book, it is arguable that nothing in this life now matters more than knowing what happens then. Although this book is relatively short, it is packed. Readers will find excellent biblical exposition and incisive analysis that will inform their minds and inflame their hearts. To request your copy of Heaven and Hell today, or to send a gift to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
women with the criteria that Paul has established, if they so chose, could make a solemn pledge before God. Now, when this pledge was made, the church committed itself, at least as, if I've read the passage correctly, to also supporting these women in full-time ministry, provided there was no other means of support. I know that some of you are saying, well, why are there no such pledges offered today? You know, why don't we have similar orders in the church today? Well, first, I don't know. And secondly, I don't think that Paul is prescribing it here. Rather, he's shaping a pattern that had developed in the early church, and he's keeping it from potential abuses. In fact, what he wants us to know is that such a calling is not without dangers. In other words, as wonderful as it all sounds, Satan always stands ready to subvert people who sense a calling to any kind of ministry. The world is filled with pastors and missionaries and parachurch workers and others who began a calling to ministry with a pure heart and then through a process of events have found themselves used by the evil one to further his ends. And Paul knows that. And so he's warning, while specifically for widows, he's also warning all of us. But really, aren't all of us called into ministry? If you're a Christian, uh, you've been called to represent Christ to the watching world in all that you do. You know, the way you live your life will make either a positive or a negative impact on the lives of others. Everyone is a calling, a mission, a ministry for the gospel. So here Paul is telling widows, but we should listen because I think God has something to say to all of us. So let's get back to verses 11 and 12. But refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, here then is the first danger that Paul foresees to widows who take a pledge to remain single, and then they go back on that pledge. Never underestimate the power of sexual desire. So let's talk about the pledge or the vow in which a person makes a formal commitment to God to remain unmarried. Now, Deuteronomy 23 verses 21 to 23 says this about vows. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So then, vows are not required. None of us are ever called upon to make a specialized vow, but once we've made the vow, God's going to hold us to it. And that's why when, you know, here in verse 12, you can see the woman who did not keep their vow were incurring condemnation. And the Greek word for condemnation, it's a legal word. It refers to the actions of a judge wherein he decides appropriate sentence for a given action. Therefore, this is not to say that the widows suffer eternal punishment. Sometimes the word is used that way, but the King James Version translates it as damnation. But we shouldn't translate it that way. It's most likely means that God will chasten them, that he'll discipline them, he'll correct them. At any rate, we're to take from this that God is very serious with us when we make vows. But then how do we apply this? Well, first of all, let me speak to those orders within the Christian movement that have encouraged young people to take a vow of celibacy. See, I'm absolutely sure that even though Paul commends singleness in certain situations, that the Bible frowns on taking vows of celibacy at least until the age of 60 or until sexual desires wane. Never should young men or women take such a vow, for they might not keep it. In fact, the abuses in the Catholic priesthood can result in damnation. 
the track record of sexual unfaithfulness and even perversion following a vow of celibacy is so great that history itself should keep us from such a folly. But the Bible forbids such a thing. Secondly, let's speak about the issues of marriage. One of the purposes of marriage is to satisfy the sexual urge. The Bible's explicit about this matter. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2 says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And God has determined that marriage and only marriage is the place for the satisfaction of sexual desire. I think I can speak to those who are single in this way. If you're struggling with sexual desire, you should seek marriage. Every once in a while, a young person will say to me, you know, please pray that my sexual desire will go away. And my response is, how am I going to pray for that? Instead, I'm going to pray that God finds you a godly spouse and that you enjoy this gift from God and learn to understand that with this comes a lifelong obligation to love that person. This is the tonic for our selfish age that desires singleness with no obligation and also desires sexual fulfillment at the same time. I don't have the time to explain how often this destroys faith and brings condemnation and perverts our ways and leads to death. I commend marriage. Never underestimate the power of sexual desire. That desire can subvert your spiritual life and bring you under condemnation. Second, never underestimate selfish distortion in ministry. Verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. See, Paul focuses on two selfish distortions of ministry and also in singleness. I mean, the first is laziness. He calls these people idlers. You know, in the Greek world, this word often referred to people who were unemployed. In fact, Jesus used it this way when he spoke of the parable in Matthew 20, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, where he spoke of the men standing around in the marketplaces and who weren't working. They had nothing to do. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 18 says, through sloth, the roof sinks in. The book of Proverbs calls the lazy individual a sluggard. Even while it condemns laziness because it leads to poverty, Proverbs contains another warning. Proverbs 26 verse 16, it says that the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. In other words, laziness not only leads to poverty, but it also leads to thinking that the sun rises and sets on you. You become self-absorbed and overwhelmed with your own importance, easily upset if someone doesn't give you the praise that you think you're due. And with this temptation, Paul also raises the issue of gossip, busybody, someone who's in everybody else's business because they're not occupied. See, there's a temptation in the sensual realm but there's even a greater one to meddle with everybody. The point is that the calling of full-time ministry has its dangers. It has points where it subverts and Paul will have none of it. And because of this, he lays down general rules for everyone. And what I mean is that Paul wants us to understand that there's a legitimate role in being single and even in making a vow to remain single for the cause of the gospel. But this is the exception. There are, however, rules that govern the basic lifestyle of Christian people. Verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. See, I think we should take from that that marriage and family is normative for Christian believers. Let's be clear. The Bible holds singleness as an opportunity for ministry. 
The time that you would spend in your relationship with your spouse, raising your children, should not be used for extra leisure trips and self-indulgent living. Use the time for ministry. It brings great honor to God. It's pleasing to Him. But the norm is marriage. Young men should be preparing for a career so that you can have enough money and resources so that when you marry your wife, well, she might also have a career. That's now normative. But when she's at home caring for a baby, she's going to be sustained by your provision. We should be training our young men and women to think about marriage and children and building of homes that glorify God. Why? Because Paul wants no opportunity for the adversary. Paul knows that Satan will use our spare time to lead people astray. And so Paul wants us to lead lives of purpose. We're to be actively involved in the master's business. Purpose for most of us is in marriage, but there's also purpose for some in singleness. You know, I say this because I think it's countercultural. You know, people buy lottery tickets because they want to drop out and live a life of leisure. In a day when marriage is denigrated and young people are encouraged to delay marriage, even at the danger of their sexual purity, I would reverse the trend. We should view marriage and family, having and raising children, as the normal calling for all of us, recognizing that there will be those who have a specialized calling. Now, that's what this passage of widows teaches us. But it also teaches us that widows have changed the world. Single people have changed the world. People who have been given extra time and are freed from family obligations can sometimes be used by God in the most amazing ways possible. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing passage and what it teaches us. Thanks so much, John. You know, I have a a bit of a different question. You know, statistically, the age of marriage and having children is increasing significantly. Is there a cautionary note to that reality? Oh, there sure is. I mean, I I would say, first of all, you know, for all those that say, you know, I'm going to delay marriage a long period of time, you know, (laughs) know, we need to recognize that even though the age of marriage has been delayed, the age of the onset of puberty— and of sexual desire is not. So unless people have this extraordinary ability to control their sexual desires, um, I suspect that a lot of people are simply being sexually unfaithful. And so I think as a believer, I would say, get married. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Living the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld focus on the use of expositional teaching of the Bible, a verse-by-verse, in-depth discovery of Scripture, allowing the Word of God to speak for itself, understanding its context, eternal relevance for today, tomorrow, and for the life of every believer. Sarah wrote to say, I so appreciate this teaching by Dr. John Newfeld. This message has come at a very important time. I am grateful for the wisdom and insight. And we're grateful for all of our listeners, but also that God's timing is perfect and that the Word of God taught faithfully speaks directly into the life of every believer. 
And don't forget this month that Dr. John's newest book, Heaven and Hell, is being made available for free simply for the asking. So call us today to request your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.